Hello, and welcome to the Soundweavers podcast. Soundweavers explores the trials and tribulations of small ensemble musicianship through conversations with leading performers and composers. Today's episode features Sean Connors and Peter Martin from Third Coast Percussion. We hope you enjoy. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Sound Weavers podcast. I am your harping host as ever, Rosanna Moore, and my amazing, my wonderful, my incredible co-host for today is the wonderful Adam Paul Cordell. Hello, Adam. How are you, my dear? Hi, Rosie. Doing well today. How are you? Just dandy. It is very, very rainy in Oregon today. It is miserable and gray, but never mind. (laughs) So who do we have on today? We have... The wonderful Grammy-winning artist-run quartet of classically trained percussionists hailing from the great and wonderful city of Chicago, one of my favorite cities to visit, the wonderful Third Coast Percussion. They have envisioned a worldwide audience that embraces creativity, curiosity, and community through music. So without further ado, we have half of the quartet today. We have Sean Connors and Peter Martin. Hi, guys. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. Hello. Thanks for having us. Anytime. So let's get right into the questions. Can you tell us a little bit about how Third Coast Percussion was founded and how did the current ensemble membership come to pass? Uh, We were all students at Northwestern University. um, So we all shared the same teacher and mentor. Uh, his name is Michael Burrett. Um, he now teaches at the Eastman School of Music. I was uh, going to say, he's a, that's, you're a pre-Eastman Michael Burrett troupe. That's what I'm Yeah, saying. yeah. And actually, and actually, Sean was also, also did study with him at Eastman as well. So uh, it's, it's, we have a lot of love uh, for Professor Burrett, Michael Burrett, um, an amazing mentor, an amazing pedagogue. And, um, you know, for us, uh, and one, one, one of the, one of the things that, that's really unique, I think, about his teaching is that he does really focus in on solo and chamber percussion music as sort of like the foundation um, of, of how he approaches, you know, teaching percussion in general. And so doing playing percussion ensemble music was just a big part of our training um, while we were studying together with him. And uh, we really fell in love with the music, really fell in love with, uh, you know, playing in with each other, um, obviously really loved our city and wanted to develop an opportunity, develop opportunities um, to sort of take the music that we were doing in academia, you know, as part of our conservatory training and bring it out into the real world. Because, you know, back then and, you know, obviously even continues today, um, there was really no professional models for us to look to in terms of, um, you know, professional touring percussion ensembles. Um, and it still is more of a rare breed. But that, that's how we got started. And, you know, um, we had other ties. Some of, them, some of the members had some ties to the Civic Orchestra of Chicago. The CSO's uh, training orchestra, um, which uh, sort of allowed them to form an ensemble and set up some gigs throughout the city. And that kind of helped us get some of our first performances. Um, Early on, it was, we had another member, Clay Condon, who was also another student of Michael Burritz. And he was in the group for, gosh, I guess about the first six years or so. At a certain point, Third Coast Percussion became so active that it was beginning to uh, sort of interfere with our other prof- professional pursuits. <laughs> so, um, you know, as, as professional musicians, you go where the work is and you take a variety of gigs. And um, it just got to the point where, um, and it was really an amazing experience where, where Third Coast was occupying so much of our professional and artistic time that it was clear that we were gonna have to make a choice or make a decision on either to go full-time 
into third coast percussion, or we needed to scale back what third coast percussion was doing. So that was sort of like the leap of faith moment. And we all, we all decided to go all in. And that's the, at the point in time too, when Sean uh, joined the group and uh, we've been that way ever since. Um, it's been amazing, uh, sort of wild ride. We continue to grow, um, you know, uh, now it's not just the four of us. We also have you know, some staff members that are helping us out. So talking a little bit about um, Third Coast's uh, repertoire, you guys uh, cover um, in uh, the classic works and commissions and even your own compositions. And um, I was just wondering, uh, do you guys try to have kind of an overarching approach to how you balance these different categories of music in your programming? Or do you find yourself choosing and featuring repertoire around specific themes or specific venues? We're, uh, we're all musical omnivores. I think if you, if you looked at our playlists on, on any of the devices that we, that we listen just for pleasure, it's, it's crazy. It's, it's all over the map. And uh, I think actually as performers and as artists, we would get bored if we were only playing a certain uh, type of music all the time. And I know I can speak for myself, but I think the other folks in the group, uh, this is true for them too, I was attracted to percussion as an instrument because it uh, it's found in so many different types of music. At least a part of our training, it was we we were trained in many different types of music. You know, um, mm. as a percussionist, you're expected to be able to play timpani in an orchestra and drum set with a rock band and marimba as a soloist and uh, cowbell with uh, you know uh, don't feel fear the reaper all the time. Yeah, so um, that. That in and of itself, I think, shapes some of the existing repertoire already for percussion ensemble because people come to it from many, many different places. Um, and then, and then specifically for our group, um, there's so many different things that go into programming for us, and it's it's probably our most exciting and sometimes most frustrating conversations that we have because we're all very we're all very opinionated, but. Um, I'm, I'm inspired by everybody else in the group because they're, we're constantly bringing um, music to each other to listen to and check out. We're, you know, I'm kind of a, I'm like a caveman. I still listen to CDs in my car. Uh, so the CDs that are in my car right now are half of them, I think are all suggestions from the other guys in Third Coast to listen to. And they're all over the map there. It's like uh, Flying Lotus and, uh, and Meredith and the, the new, uh, like, uh, there's a spectral quartet CD that I'm listening to, all this stuff. And uh, I think what we love to do in a program is to uh, present the unexpected. Um, and sometimes that's through um, juxtapositions of different sound worlds. So we have the capability of playing many, many different types of instruments. So the, the difference from playing a slow, beautiful piece on a marimba then to like a rock and drum piece on the next is, is pretty stark. Um, but uh, we also like to juxtapose different musical voices from our from the stage. So we're very aware that we're we're four white men, and so we try we try often to make sure that it's not just our voices being represented from the stage, but also uh, voices of people who aren't like us. <laughs> you are one of the first groups that we've managed to talk to in the during times of COVID that are actually gigging and doing things now. So yay, and either we've just managed to work out how to uh, work technology or things might be getting better. Who knows? Who knows? But you do normally do a lot of touring, which is complicated in the best of times with other groups, but it must be a nightmare given all of the equipment you need for a percussion ensemble. How do you manage the logistics of having the equipment you need for each venue? Um, and actually, how do you find these logistics influence what you end up programming? Uh, so my administration, we're, we, we each have uh, admin roles in the group. Peter is the finance director of the group. I'm the technical director. And that um, for me, that means um, I am the one who has to take a first stab at planning these things, um, production, logistics, uh, figuring out where to get all the instruments, like you said, Rosie. 
And sometimes it's difficult, <laughs> uh, but we've, uh, our whole operation runs on Google Docs. So there's lists and lists and lists of things. And um, Google Docs is the savior. <laughs> yeah, we, we, in some ways we wish we didn't have to do it, but um, as you said, there's so many moving parts with a percussion ensemble um, that we just have to be very detail oriented. Um, so uh, for example, sometimes we drive and we bring all of our own instruments and that requires renting a big truck and um, uh, before before COVID, hiring people to help us pack it all up and and uh, you know and bring it there. Um, or if we fly somewhere, then it is uh, me interfacing with the presenter and a backline company to make sure that uh, yes, indeed, we do need a five octave marimba, a xylophone oh, will suffice. No. <laughs> that sort oh. of thing. We've had we've had <laughs> lovely experiences. It always works out great, but um, lots of people take a chance on us and they they present us as the first percussion group that they've ever presented. And for them, it's a little scary and. We say, don't worry, we'll hold your hands. And sometimes, <laughs> sometimes it uh, results in hilarious uh, antics. Like one time we needed a log drum, which a, a log drum is essentially a, a hollowed out log for a lack of a better way of describing it that has a, has a, a low resonant pitch in it. And the, we were going somewhere and it was a pretty remote location. And the presenter said, I think I found a log drum for you. And I said, great, can you take a picture of it and send it to me? And she sent a picture of a guitar. <laughs> I said, I'm not oh, no. sure I'm going to be, I don't think I feel comfortable <laughs> smacking this with a stick. Maybe, maybe what we can do is just adjust the piece a little bit. <laughs> and and we, oh we did that. So, so there's, there's some fun things that happen from it. Um, it's always a work in progress. Kind of every show is a little different, but we, we do have some percussion gods and essentially they are other percussionists yes. around the world. And uh, we have um, multiple times been somewhere and been like, oh my gosh, this isn't working. And we just go on social media and say, help, help, we need something in Southern North Carolina. Oh, no. <laughs> does anyone, does anyone have this? We'll and buy you a coffee, we'll buy you dinner. Yeah, <laughs> and, and I've got to say our, our percussion community is, is awesome and we've always, People have always uh, rallied and, and come to our aid. Yeah, these are the things that make me grateful to play an instrument that only requires an instrument and bow. Yeah, you also <laughs> get to have a small car. None of us in the Zoom room will ever have a mini. We will always have big SUVs to throw our instruments in the back. Yeah, so, I mean, one of the things that I'm also interested to kind of learn a little bit about is... Um, just the the Grammy award process that you guys have been through now. Um, and you were nominated for an, a Grammy for the album uh, Perpetuum. And you won a Grammy for the album, the Steve Reich album. Yeah, tur turns out uh, uh, winning a Grammy is better than not winning a Grammy. That's what we learned with uh, the last one. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, can you talk a little bit about process i mean did did someone nominate you directly or did you guys nominate yourselves or you know how do you go through kind of the whole grammy process yeah yeah i mean so so there's there's multiple stages as as, as you're kind of alluding to so um you know the very first um grammy entry uh process is uh anybody who's a member um uh can can submit an an album or a recording uh, for um, for for Grammy entry, um, and, and you know in in the pop music like categories, I mean there's there's thousands <laughs> of entries, and, and and even in like the you know the classical music category, like our category, you know there'll be hundreds of albums um, that are submitted in that process, and um, uh, I think historically it's usually been like a record label um, that'll do that, or you know somebody uh, who's who's clearly involved in uh, in the album and uh, is a proponent of its of its success, you know, um, and so 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 that that's generally like the easy part of uh, of the process, you know, of just getting getting to that sort of like first stage, um, and I think the more challenging uh, uh, thing for anybody who's sort of campaigning or you know uh, for an award like that is is sort of like figuring out a way to sort of rise your your album to sort of rise to the top of that like large pile uh, of, of really great music you know and um everything surrounding the album your press and and all the other stuff you know help, helps that just sort of bring visibility because ultimately it's 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 also the members of the recording academy are the only people that 
get to vote uh, for, for the Grammy Awards. Um, so um, the more visible your album is, um, the more likelihood uh, people are going to listen to it and appreciate, appreciate it and uh, be compelled um, to, to vote. There's also, um, again, and this is getting really deep in the weeds um, with it, but if you are like sort of like thinking strategically about how to get your album like out there, the, the thing about the, the Grammy voting process too is that you know anybody can vote for any genre. Um, so, so a lot of like the campaigning process then uh, with this is really trying to bring visibility to your album with um, recording academy members that are particularly just actually not even involved in necessarily like your genre of music. I think uh, in the, the first time that we were nominated and subsequently won uh, the Grammy, we did a lot of campaigning really big push. We were fortunate to have a lot of great press for the album. And uh, so when we were nominated, it was a big honor. And we're like, wow, mm -hmm. that worked. <laughs> it's not like we were expecting it, but, but we, we spent a lot of time really, really campaigning um, and, and really putting in a lot of effort. And um, with this last album, Perpetulum, it's not that we didn't spend any time, but um, Sean can maybe add in on this too. But I think all of us were very, very surprised. Mm -hmm. Uh, it was not something that we were anticipating at all. And we've had other albums that we've campaigned for, campaigned for really hard um, that weren't nominated, you know, at all. And then all of a sudden I woke up one morning and it's always my little sister who's really on top of the Grammy stuff. Uh, she texted me, she's like, oh my gosh, congratulations. Um, and uh, yeah, so it was, it was a big surprise for the Perpetual album. Uh, we love that album, super honored that it was nominated. But yeah, it's a uh, it's it's definitely a process, elusive and secretive <laughs> process uh, within the Recording Academy. Well, thank you for demystifying it for all of the listeners, because I it's just one of those things to me. I'm like, how how are these brilliant people getting these things aside from being wonderful? Like there has to be some secret door or password you have to give to work out what's going on. So thank you for demystifying it. If anyone's listening and they're interested about the Recording Academy feel free to reach out to us or, or any other Recording Academy member. Um, and everyone's really sweet and nice and they'll, they'll, they'll show you the ropes. That's, it is kind of confusing the first time that you even try to apply to become a member. And now they've shifted it to become an invitation system. So it's, it's good to speak up about those things because if, if you're in the back of your mind, you're interested in it, it probably, probably won't become involved unless you actively seek it out. So I'd encourage yeah. anybody who's interested to just start asking anybody, you know, call up me and Pete and we'll tell you about it. <laughs> yeah. 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 And we, we were, we were all members before, you know, we were nominated and certainly before we, we won our first Grammy. And, and yeah, I mean, it is true. Um, the, the process to become a member is also very sort of um, elusive, I, I, I think. Um, and, and the process changes. Mm -hmm. um, and like, like Sean said, it, it's now different where you, you actually have to be sort of um sort of vetted by other um, members. Um, the Recording Academy, uh, like so many other organizations, has historically been very white and very male. And um, that has repercussions on the music that is then put forth, voted on, and, and subsequently winning um, uh, Grammy Awards. And um, you know, just like everything else uh, in our sort of like niche of, of music, I, I think it's just really, really important that um, more and more people uh, particularly more and more diverse voices become part of the recording academy yeah cool. out of curiosity how many albums have you guys recorded at this point we have a couple of different ways we have um that we've recorded we've released our own albums through labels and also we have i think two self-released albums uh but we've also appeared on other mm. uh, artist albums so in terms of full length third coast albums rob always knows the number off the top of his head i think it's like nine two weeks ago we were recording a piece for two albums from now and next week we're going into to, to mix an album which will be out in the spring so we kind of have a, a pipeline of recordings um it's one of the things that's part of our mission and that we love to do to just get uh, especially works that haven't been recorded before that's interesting then so i i actually kind of want to follow up on that so if you're kind of having a, a regular pipeline are you just recording pieces that you feel really committed to and then putting it into an album around a theme later or are are you designing the albums before you go in yeah yeah uh these days uh because the process of like from recording to like actually releasing an album is 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 a long 
you know, like process. And we try to match our albums to the programs that we're touring, which often means that we need to know what we're going to be touring like a year in advance so that we can record the album and hopefully have like the album release align with what we're going to be touring. This has come from like a process of a lot of like a lot of early albums where we would, you know, record the repertoire that we were currently touring. And then by the time that the album came out, we're no longer playing it anymore. And which is, you know, sort of a missed opportunity. So, so yeah, it take, takes a lot of planning and it generally falls around um, the stuff that we're going to be, you know, performing live in concert because that's, that, that's what we do. That's our bread and butter. You know, we're on the, well, when we're not in a pandemic, we're on the road 150 days a year. So trying to have, trying to have the albums line up with what our audiences are experiencing live is generally, um, and that, that's not always the case. There's other albums that, that we do. And we know that um, we're like, <laughs> I think it was what, two albums ago or something, uh, Sean, we released the Philippe's Manorie, uh, Philippe Manorie's uh, Le Livre de Clavier. We released that album and that was a performance project that we had done maybe four or five years before and we had it sitting in the can for a long time. Never had a reason to necessarily release it, mainly because we weren't performing at all. And at a certain point we're like, listen, uh, there, there are no available recordings of this full piece um, and it's a, an important piece of repertoire you know, for percussion. And part of our mission is you know, making sure that um, all this great repertoire is, uh, you know, given visibility uh, in the world. So, so we released that album. Um, we haven't played any of that music and probably are never going. Oh, I won't say never, but um, we have no plans for playing that music hmm. at all. So, so it's, it's kind of a balance, but, but most of the time it, it follows our touring. It's, it's very complicated. And I always say that it just has made us become much more purposeful with everything that we do. I, I think that's sort of a theme of our organization that over the last few years is um, we've gotten very thoughtful about our planning and, um, you know, stuff happens like, you know, there was a pandemic this year. I'm not sure if did you guys hear about <laughs> oh, this. What? What? There was a pandemic? It's it's oh, still going on. Surely I'm not. not. Sure you know about that too. But um, our mantra is make a plan, but be flexible. And we try to do that with our recordings, but we also try to do that with our commissions and our education work and our hiring of staff members and hopefully it's seeping throughout the whole organization. In 2018, uh, you guys were invited to perform a tiny desk concert for NPR. Given all of your equipment, uh, that Tesk looked pretty gosh darn tiny. <laughs> um, how do you program differently for performances like that compared to your more traditional concert settings? That whole experience was just a blast and so fun and inspiring from start to finish. But it very much is just a tiny desk. <laughs> and for anyone anyone who's, who knows this series, it's through NPR and it's awesome. And we've all in the group learned about new artists just by subscribing to it and listening to it. So when we made a connection with them and they asked us to be involved, we were so excited and honored. And we immediately started talking about programming, but also logistics. So the group had, had very thorough uh, programming uh, talks, probably at least 10, uh, you know, in a tour van somewhere, <laughs> arguing about which pieces to include. And, uh, but we also, I would say, especially me, was in contact with the sound engineer and the host to say, like, exactly how tiny is the desk? <laughs> Can you take pictures? Can you send us measurements? And uh, we were, we were actually in tour in Oregon, Rosie. Um, and I remember going into a dressing room or a rehearsal area somewhere and taping off <laughs> the actual footprint and trying to set up a marimba, a vibraphone, and then just troubleshooting and see like, how is this going to happen? And it's that particular performance made us much more efficient with some repertoire that we play all the time. For instance, David wrote a piece um, called Torched and Wrecked. For the percussion nerds who are listening right now, it's for, it's for two marimbas and two vibraphones. So that takes up a lot of space. Those are big instruments. And we started just getting creative and said, well, this piece is, would be really great to do on tiny desk because it's, it's a good closure. It's very high energy, but how are we going to do this? First of all, let's do it without the electronics. <laughs> just get rid of the electronics. And we tried that and we're like, actually it works without the electronics. Hmm. And then we uh, combined the two Murma parts and made it so that they didn't have to overlap and they could play on one instrument. 
Peter's part is this virtuosic vibraphone part that just goes all over the place. It's really hard. It's really fast. He never stops playing. It's just like a, a fire hose of, of notes. Um, and I also play vibraphone, but I only play four pitches the whole time. And so they're like, well, what if Sean just plays it on four pitched metal pipes? <laughs> and we put that on top of the desk and then problem solved. And actually we've toured that piece in that format now quite a bit. So um, challenges like that, I think this is probably true for any group or any person, but challenges often force you to come up with creative solutions. You know, that's like probably what we're all going through right now with the, the pandemic. Tiny Desk did that in a very positive way for us. <laughs> yeah, Tiny Desk is interesting too, because it's like, I think, I think from, from, the, from the perspective of an audience member, you know, it gives the impression that like, oh, these musicians just like sort of showed up and just, just like, you know, played a couple things on like an off day. And then it seems very casual, I think, from the impression of an audience member, but it's actually very, very like tightly organized and tightly like structured. You're in this sort of office space, but like you have a, a very strict like amount of time that you're supposed to be playing. For us, we had to like actually edit like music that we were playing, uh, like truncate some certain things. And like, um, they're very particular about like, you know, audio and, and, and certain stuff like that. And like, you know, you only get one shot. <laughs> so there's no editing after the fact, you know, there's just like some mixing and whatnot. And it's like very strict in terms of time. So um, it was a different type of performance experience than than most concerts that we do. Um, it was more akin to doing stuff like live broadcast um, things where everything's very, very efficient. And those are always, uh, those are always fun experiences. I mean, they take a lot more work and a lot more preparation. But like Sean was saying, um, through that process, dealing with some of the challenges that come with that, you, you learn a lot from it. And, and I think actually the repertoire actually becomes better you know, as a result. Taking things a little bit in a different direction, but kind of on the same trajectory, we wanted to talk with you a little bit about some of your education and community engagement activities. And in particular, uh, you've got two educational programs, uh, the Think Outside the Drum and the Music Composition Project. Uh, would you be willing to talk a little bit about how you develop these programs and what your main goals are for these initiatives? Absolutely. I might start and talk about those two programs. And then if you'll allow us, if you'll give us some room to stretch out a little bit. Maybe Peter can talk about a, another education program, which we're really excited about, which um, combines STEM education with mm -hmm. education in the arts. So Adam mentioned that we have um, a program called Think Outside the Drum. And that is our any audience, any situation in a, in a middle school gym, no problem. In the state capital of Alaska, no problem. You know, in a giant mall in uh, Seattle, uh, no problem. <laughs> we've, we've done this show in many different situations and it is very flexible. And what we like about it is it's, um, it's about a 50 minute show. It's for all ages. And the thing that we focus on is participation, total participation from the audience. So it's our kind of introduction to the basic fundamentals of music, essentially, our, our show. So it's, it's really not, it can be for an audience of musicians or music students, but it's, it really doesn't need to be. That's a show that we love. And, in, and I think, you know, I could be wrong, but I think it's our most performed show, hmm. even though maybe it doesn't uh, get all the fireworks that some of our higher profile shows do. But um, we can, we can do it if we have a few drums and a marimba and that's pretty much it you know um don't, it doesn't need to be multimedia it doesn't need to be everything else so we love that show um and i i'd say we probably perform that show at least once a residency like if we're involved with a university somewhere oftentimes we'll we'll play it for um community students k through 12 or something like that so that think outside the drum, drum show is more akin to a concert i would say like an interactive educational concert but one of the things that we really like is having multi-visit experiences with um, students so that we uh, don't just helicopter in and then, and then leave. Those experiences are good too, and they can be inspiring and, and they can be a nice um, augmentation for whatever else is going on. But we, we really like to get to know a community and, and interact multiple times. Um, and our composition program that we run is an opportunity for uh, students, especially young students, to uh, dip their toes into creative music making. 
we found um, that instrumental music, especially, um, at least in the United States, uh, educationally, in the early years, doesn't focus a lot on um, the students composing or improvising. And then like suddenly when you're in college, if you're a composition major, for example, you just have to like, somehow you became one. <laughs> and Somehow things come from your right. brain. Or yep. like, if yep. you, like in high school, if you're, <laughs> I'll speak to my, my own experience. If you're in jazz band, suddenly you need to know how to improvise. Mm -hmm. It's like, well, there's, there's aren't a lot of, and I think it's getting better. I think there are, are more and more opportunities now, but one particular thing that we wanted to focus on is um, demystifying composition and making it a lot less scary for little ones, especially. So we have, this program is about four visits long and we break um, a group of students into small little pods and each member of Third Coast is assigned to a pod and we elicit um, little cells, little musical motives. So if you're a musician listening to this, think a measure or two, like just a little phrase. And we come up, the students come up with melodies, they come up with rhythms. So if you, yeah, so that's like a groove uh, on one pitch. And then they come up with a texture, which is um, just like a, a sound bed. It doesn't need to have a set a rhythm or groove. Or it doesn't need to be a pitch. So for a, a, a harp, you know, it might be like playing with the key or doing something like that. Or for a violist, it might be glisses or playing on the other side of the bridge, um, extended techniques often. Mm -hmm. And we've done this in person a bunch uh, where after several visits, we then um, have the students take these cells and like they're in a, a, a DAW, uh, a digital audio workstation, move these cells around over different parts of an accompaniment that Third Coast plays. Uh, but now uh, since COVID, we've been doing this online. And actually there's um, some challenges of course, but there are some hidden benefits like uh, the students can record themselves and then we can highly edit it mm -hmm. and make it a really nice, uh, a video presentation at the end that'll live forever. It won't just be one concert. Um, so we've done this a bunch with a very close partner of, of ours here in Chicago, the People's Music School, who we love. They're, they're a constant source of inspiration. They're a, a free music school, tuition free. And um, we, I, I, we just had our last meeting with a group of students last night uh, with our composition project online. So in a few weeks, they'll have a We'll have a nice little thing that we can present. Um, so th those are those two programs. And then maybe if we have enough time, Peter can talk about our uh, Making Waves program. Our Making Waves program is actually, uh, ha has grown over many years as a result of our work with the engineering college at the University of Notre Dame. And that work has been focused on sort of STEAM education. By STEAM, it's uh, you're taking STEM, science, technology, engineering, and math and adding the A or the arts into that educational environment. And the idea, the, the spirit behind STEAM education is that while we often compartmentalize the arts versus science, um, think of them as two different things. In reality, they, they occupy some of like the same sort of um, same sort of space. Like uh, we tend to think of like, we, we, we have these pre-assumptions that, that, that um, you know, artists are creative and scientists are, are uh, focus on analysis and that they don't sort of like cross over. Uh, and, and the reality, I think we can all agree as musicians that we spend a lot of our time in, in analysis. It's a, what we do is very creative, but what we do is also very analytical. Mm -hmm. And the same thing with the fields of science, technology, engineering, and math. Any career that you have in a STEM environment is going to require you to be equally creative and analytical uh, uh, to be good and successful at your job. So taking that sort of spirit uh, of thinking of these two things more holistically. We developed a series of different education programs. The most recent one is this Making Waves program, as, as Sean uh, mentioned. And uh, I guess real bird's eye sort of view about this is that it's, it's a program that's designed for third through fifth graders. And it's currently being um, used in the Elkhart public school system in Elkhart, Indiana, which is close to South Bend, Indiana, where uh, the University of Notre Dame is located. And uh, students um, build instruments, build custom made or sort of custom designed instruments for this project. They're all percussion instruments. Uh, there's a log drum, uh, there's a set of chimes, which has these sort of like tubular metal uh, striking tubes and uh, some shakers and some, some other fun stuff. And so 
they learn about sound waves, they learn about the design of the instrument, they actually physically build the instruments themselves. And then we take those instruments and similar to the process that Sean was discussing about our composition project, we go through that compositional project uh, process with them on those specific instruments, those custom made percussion instruments. And so they're learning. Um, so, so in this case, it's, it's people who have, might have no musical experience at all. And uh, now all of a sudden they're getting to not only build their own instruments, but also using those instruments to create their own music and compose their own content. And um, so, yeah, it's been a, it's been a wonderful experience. That is like a longer term. It's generally set up for an informal learning environment, like an after school program. And we've done it anywhere from eight weeks long to an entire, you know, semester. And uh, yeah, it's just been a sort of a, an even more robust educational experience that we've been designing and now are moving further with it where we're trying to remove ourselves actually from the equation. So rather than us being involved in the teaching, um, we're developing the curriculum so that we can give it to a teacher and just have it run them, uh, ha have it run uh, themselves for whatever, you know, teaching situation that they're in. You have an emerging composers program, which pairs Third Coast with emerging composers, offering workshops, a premiere, a live performance recording, and an honorarium on an upcoming season. So now that I've done the preamble for that, can you talk about how you launched and have sustained this particular program and how long has Third Coast been running this endeavor? Sure, yeah. So like many other things that we've been talking about today, we realized that we had to become very intentional with what we were doing. And we wanted to make sure that no matter what, we were leaving room in our year, in our season, to be working with folks who were at the beginning of their career, who were music creators and wanted to work with percussion and wanted access to a professional um, percussion group. And the way for us to do that was to formalize it, essentially, and, and commit to a yearly program. So uh, it's free to apply to. We get roughly 200 applicants a year. And unfortunately, we only have enough time and money to work with two historically each year. Um, so it's, it's a wonderful problem to have because, you know, out of those applications, we meet, we get to know so many people's music. And we've actually discovered pieces that already exist that we've um, uh, and composers who we heard about for the first time through this process and we end up playing their their music even though they we might not partner with them to create a piece together. The program really embodies our whole philosophy of commissioning and uh, collaborating with the composer in that we really believe in workshopping together, allowing a composer time to uh, play around a little bit, um, get to know the, the instruments and the sounds that they are interested in, but also have us be very connected in the creative process and make suggestions or try things out, give them proof of concept for an idea that they have. Because sometimes composers have an awesome idea, but it just doesn't work on a particular instrument. And maybe then they can change that idea or save that idea for an instrument that it works on or, or something else. And that, that has happened with almost all the uh, composers that we've worked with in any context. So we, we started the Emergent Composer Partnership formally, I believe, in 2013. It was the first year that we accepted applicants. And so we've been uh, yearly since 2014 uh, performing new works um, created from that program. And we've met some of our dearest compositional collaborator friends through that process. And it's, it's awesome. We've... Uh, commissioned uh, folks from Canada and Ireland and all over the United States and uh, Greece. And it's one of the things that I personally look forward to every single year. Third Coast has set a programming goal to reflect the diversity of our nation and provides a numerical goal for the season um, to include composers of 50% uh, uh, non-male background and 40% African, Latinx, Asian, Arab, and Native American descent. Um, can you speak about some of the ways that you're working to accomplish that goal? Yeah, absolutely. And um, 
I would say that, uh, you know, this was something that we've been working on now for a couple of years, you know, as we reflected on the music that we were playing and asking ourselves like some questions of like, uh, you know, why is it that when we come to an artistic roundtable and we're talking about new potential collaborators or, you know, artists that we want to work with, why do they continue to be white and why do they continue to be male and, and 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 you know when you when you ask yourselves those questions you realize that there's like a, a deeper systemic thing that's going on and we knew um we knew that we just needed to address it and it needed to be part um of every single conversation that we were having in the same way that uh you know stuff like logistics with our instruments is part of every conversation uh that we have um diversity equity and inclusion needs to be part of the, the conversation so we started lo uh, we started looking back um, over multiple seasons of repertoire that we we could play, uh, we um, we believe very strongly. We actually have a board member that that tells us this oftentimes uh, that if you can't measure it, you can't manage it. And so for us, measuring it was actually going through our previous seasons and actually um, quantifying, you know, what the repertoire was and how we were represented traditionally unrepresented voices in our genre. And so we went through all that and we realized that uh, the numbers were staggeringly low in terms of, again, the, the amount of diverse voices that we were featuring um, in terms of uh, gender and ethnicity. We, we decided that the, the best way for us to approach like the uh, diversity and equity and inclusion being an ensemble of four white men um, was to really focus on the amount of time that we are performing on a stage. And think about the amount of time us performing on stage that we we're spending representing and bringing diverse voices um, to that stage. Uh, knowing full well that, again, we're, we're four white men um, and we don't generally um, tour with other musicians. You know, it's, it's sort of a, a fixed a fixed ensemble. And we, we focused on programming, as Peter said, because it felt like the biggest impact we have. Like, clearly, there's so many other things that need to be addressed. And this will be a career-long uh, pursuit that we'll have. And we'll, the goal is to just integrate it in such a way that it becomes second nature uh, for everything that Third Coast Percussion does. Right now, we're going to focus on programming <laughs> and, and, and try to move, move forward in that arena. And then I'm, I'm sure uh, we'll also start addressing other things. To take this in a different direction, um, we wanted to chat with you guys a little bit. Um, it, it's a very in innovative thing for an ensemble to develop mobile apps. <laughs> well, the first group um, who have done this that we have chatted to. <laughs> as far as yeah. I know, yeah. Um, but it's really interesting because you've got apps for composing in a minimalist style and for taking everyday sounds and turning it into John Cage-like compositions. So um, I was just wondering, how did Third Coast come to develop these apps and, and do you have plans for more? Yeah, so, um, man, this was... This was back, this was before we released our uh, album of the percussion music of John Cage. So this would have been, we were thinking about this, this would have been all the way back in, you know, like 2009. Because actually around that time, Bjork released an album on an app, on an app. I believe it was called Biophilia. That was something that um, I think all of us found really inspiring. And uh, we were trying to think of different type of media or different ways that we could, you know, be able to present our album. And then simultaneously also thinking about ways that we could market our album, you know, in, in sort of new or more innovative ways. We thought it'd be really cool to, to somehow get an app developed. And luckily, uh, one of Rob's childhood friends uh, happened to be working at Apple. That's um, handy. Designing apps. <laughs> to be honest, if it wasn't for that, I, I doubt we would have been able to do the type of stuff that we did early on with creating some of these apps. So the first one that we released um, was the John Cage app, released sort of to coincide with our release, our album release of the, the percussion music of John Cage. That was great. It was really successful. Again, the, the idea with the app was to allow just sort of a different access point into the music that we were playing, um, a different way to interact with it. We, uh, we, we allowed uh, them, the people, the, the opportunity to, to be able to sort of like sample and play, um, activate, you know, our percussion instruments that were using, used on that album, like through that app. So um, we released an album right after that of Augusta Reed Thomas's uh, music for Peace Resounding Earth. And similarly, we, we focused on the instruments and just 
it was just a sort of a new gateway or a new a, a different way for our audience members to experience the music and the instruments and then probably the most robust app that we've done today was the one that coincided with our release of the the percussion music of steve reich and that was the one that we won a grammy award for in addition to our work with uh, uh joe gendon uh who's the app designer we also then brought in a team of um um, um artists sonin zimmer um who do uh, a variety of graphic arts and we've had them design albums for us and all, all this other stuff so so we brought in a, a design team as well as the the app designers and um made sure that you know we got steve reich's input in on it you know too and whatnot and, and he had he had a lot of uh sort of say about it which sort of like shaped the final outcome of that album and um yeah for that one it's it 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 becomes not only a way to learn about the music um in in a sort of a different context but it also offers the opportunity for the users mm -hmm. to actually create their own content using some like the compositional practices of Steve Reich. Can you still get all of these apps? Because I think yeah, I yeah, need yeah. to. And, and, um, they're yes. only available um, through the App Store, uh, the Apple App Store. So they only operate um, if you have an iPhone or an iPad. Um, we don't have Android versions of them, unfortunately. But they're all free. So if you go to the App Store, the Apple App Store, um, and if you just search for Third Coast Percussion, you'll find them all. So we have one final question, and this is always my favorite question to ask, especially because we're asking percussionists, so I cannot imagine what's going to come out. Uh, but what is the strangest gig you've ever done? Oh, the yoga festival. Yeah, yeah, that was... Uh... I'm yeah. sorry, what? <laughs> that was in Illinois in, in the middle of farm country. And uh, there are so many good stories from this. There are so many good stories. Uh, so there's probably not enough time in the podcast. I'll, I'll say a few and then Peter can say the ones that I forgot. So first of all, it was outdoors, which is always a little terrifying for percussionists, especially, or a harpist, Rosie, you know, because like if it starts pouring rain, it's like a scramble. Yeah, you're, you're in trouble. And it was, it was beautiful when we loaded in, but uh, you know, during sound check, the storm clouds started rolling in. So it poured rain during part of it. And there's, there's the whole mix of that. It was also a yoga festival. So it wasn't necessarily like a new music um, festival. So um, there was a wide range of performers on a stage on, that rotated throughout the day, which was really cool, but it, it felt, um, it was just, it was, it was interesting. It was an interesting vibe. There was a lot of people walking around with white robes on, for example, there, there was a, there was a, there was a candle parade. And one of our favorite stories that we say when people have trouble with our names, um, uh, one of the organizers uh, ran up on stage right before we were supposed to perform. And she was very, very nice. And she said, uh, forgive me, could you just say exactly the way you want me to introduce you? very, very slowly and clearly. And I said, no, thank you for asking. That sounds great. Third Coast Percussion. And she said, thank you. And she turned around and said, please welcome Third World Productions. <laughs> oh, <no>. <laughs> <laughs> we're like, okay, here we go. <laughs> and I'm sure there's many others. Like there's, I think our van got stuck when we were trying to load out of there or something. And I was like, hey, listen guys, uh, I need I need to find somebody who's going to give us our check, um, like because like I'm not leaving without getting paid for this because like we're not coming back. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I just remember me and, and and one other one other person from Third Coast. I remember just like I was running around trying to find anybody. I, I think that was like part of like the issue too, right, Sean? That like nobody that we had been in conversation with who had actually developed or, or put together the festival was there what was you know, yeah they were they were uh probably short stack i would say there's a lot of people trying to do a lot of things and yeah. i think it was probably a, a festival that they were putting on out of their passion you know <laughs> we had a friend with us actually oh my gosh i'm remembering this now she came with us to just because uh, she was a she wrote for the percussive art society um uh like magazine or something like that and she said, can I just hang out with you guys and go to a, a gig with, with y'all? And we said, of course, sure. Come to the strangest she, one. <laughs> she, was, she was trapped in the van with us the whole time. <laughs> and it was raining and we had to push, we had to get out and push the van out of the mud. I just remember driving back and we were all silent for like 20 minutes. 
And then I turned around, I was like, so how was that? How was that for your article? <laughs> Thank you so, so much. Once again, we have half of third coast percussion, not third world presenters or whatever was used at the yoga festival. We have the wonderful and amazing Sean Connors and Peter Martin. Thank you so much for chatting with us today. Uh, we will put all the info and all of your contacts and socials and things down in the show notes below. And a huge, huge thank you for having such a delightful conversation with us today. This has been really, really fun. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Soundweavers podcast. If you enjoyed our show, please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and most other major podcast platforms. We hope that you'll visit us at www.soundweaverscast.com, follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Soundweaverscast, and on Twitter at SWChambercast, where you'll get episodes as soon as they drop, show notes, and regular updates. This podcast is hosted by Rosanna Moore and engineered by Blair Kerner. I'm your producer, Adam Paul Cordell. Our theme music was composed by Evan Henry and recorded by the Soundweavers team. The music you heard in today's podcast was composed by Devante Hines and performed by Third Coast Percussion. On behalf of the Soundweavers cast, see you in two weeks. Thank you.